Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, July 21st, 2010. Looking at the program notes here today. Yep, I, I think this is it. This is going to be the final lineup. <clears throat> there, I'm going, well, what was, uh, what were you thinking wasn't going to make the cut? Yeah, I, I don't talk about that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Ultimately, this is a teaching uh, program, although we try to have some fun along the way, and it's all about getting you to not automatically just say, okay, whatever my pastor says is true. And uh, and he's the man of God. I'm not the man of God. Who I've never studied uh, theology, and how would I, who, who am I to challenge my pastor? So I'm just going to believe everything he says without questioning. Yeah, that's a problem, because uh, <laughs> one of the most dangerous places to be nowadays, spiritually, is inside of a church. And I don't care what brand it's got on the outside of it, uh, whether it's Southern Baptist, whether it's Methodist, whether it's Lutheran or Presbyterian or Reformed or <clears throat> seeker driven. You got it. You always your allegiance is to Christ and to his word. Your allegiance is to Christ and to his word. And uh, when your pastor uh, deviates from Scripture um, you're not to f just blindly follow your pastor. And as a result of it, w we have the job uh, that's been, well, that's been praised in Scripture. And that's the job uh, that the Bereans did, the work that they did. Uh, when the Apostle Paul breezed into the town of Berea, um, he preached the gospel to them. Now, the folks there in Berea didn't have the New Testament because, well, large portions in the New Testament hadn't been written up to that point. But what they did have was uh, a, a translation of the Jewish Old Testament in, in Greek, uh, known as the Septuagint. And what we learn uh, when we read the book of Acts is that when the Bereans heard the gospel, they immediately went into God's word into the Old Testament to compare what the Apostle Paul preached to them 
to what the scriptures teach, to see if what he was saying was true. Just because he was an apostle, he didn't get a pass. Just because he was somebody who, who actually, whom, uh, whom Christ appeared to directly, he didn't get a pass. He didn't try to pull the trump card, didn't try to play the, you know, play the authority rank card and say, how dare you Bereans question or challenge me? Don't you know that I am God's anointed and the scriptures say you shall not touch God's anointed? What I said to you is true and you will believe it or else because I am the apostle Paul. No, that's not what the scriptures say at all. It says that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the word with joy and they compared the gospel that Paul preached to God's word. If the apostle Paul doesn't even get a pass and the Bereans are praised by God the Holy Spirit, in his word, as having a noble character, because they compared what was preached to them to the word of God. It's worth taking note. It's worth taking note and saying, you know what? My pastor, Chris Roseboro, nobody gets a pass. God's word is true. And all human beings are sinful and capable of grievous error. Sometimes the errors that are committed in the church are done so, well, blindly, because the person doesn't know any better. Sometimes the errors committed in a church are done maliciously, on purpose, deceptively. The fact is, is that there are con men and women who are in the church. Con men and women who are in the church. There's false teachers, con artists and others. And as a result of it, we must always be on our guard, especially in the things that pertain to God, even more so than, than we should be on our guard against people who uh, engage in deceptive business practices. You know, and I mean, the Better Business Bureau exists in part to, uh, you know, to help create a way of self-policing businesses so that they, you know, you, they, can, they can say they meet these Better Business Bureau standards. Well, here at Fighting for the Faith, what we do is we compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God uh, with this understanding that what happens in a church, what's taught in a church, is far more important in the grand eternal scheme of things then whether or not you were ripped off $50 by a Maytag uh, repairman. Yeah, or maybe you didn't get the best health care from your doctor. You see, when it comes to doctors and lawyers and, and people who have specialized education like that, we are pretty much unified in the sense that we want the best. We want, we wouldn't put up with somebody who basically got their medical degree from a diploma mill or somebody who said, you know, I just really like, I enjoy medicine. And so I decided I'd just go, you know, teach myself how to, you know, perform surgery and things like that. <clears throat> yeah. Or, or an attorney who, well, didn't study law, 
but really is fascinated by law and order on television. Therefore, you know, feels that they, you know, they're qualified to be an attorney. None, I mean, nobody would go to a doctor or an attorney uh, if those were their credentials. And yet when it comes to our eternal salvation, isn't that the exact type of person that many are putting their uh, their eternal salvation, basically putting them into the hands of people who have pretty much that level of understanding and experience when it comes to uh, God's Word. They haven't studied. They don't know their languages. They don't know sound biblical theology and doctrine. They don't know the proper distinction of law and gospel. They couldn't spell sound doctrine if it was given to them in, in the $1 million question on television. And yet, many people preferred those kinds of pastors, well, because they're entertaining. They can draw a crowd. Yet they can't properly handle God's word, and they're not qualified to teach even kindergarten, biblically. And yet they're the head pastors in many, many, many churches. And these are the men who, when you challenge what they say on biblical grounds, and say, wait a second, pastor, or should I say CEO, that's not what God's Word says. They malign and impugn you. They call you divisive and put you out of the church. Think about it. Those men are not pastors, and they're not qualified to do so. And if we wouldn't trust ourselves to a man who never went to medical school or who flunked out of it, but wanted to practice medicine, why on earth would we trust our eternal salvation of ourselves, our kids, our family, and our friends to men who have the equivalent of a diploma mill degree that they sent away for, for their ordination? I don't care how many people they can attract to a building or how good of marketers there are or how savvy they are when it comes to the latest leadership principles. If they're miserable and unqualified to teach regarding truly handling God's word, you have no business listening to them, yet alone tithing to them. We need pastors who will do the hard work of studying and understanding God's word and really digging into it deep and bringing out God's word in a way that highlights Christ and what he has done for us, that placards him and him crucified for our sins, and that calls sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and doesn't cut corners in the name of of basically putting on a show that would be friendly to seekers, because there's no such thing. But instead, soberly, diligently, faithfully, patiently, does the hard work of one who rightly handles the word of truth and teaches people sound biblical doctrine, doesn't twist it, doesn't add to it, doesn't take away from it, isn't ashamed of the gospel. Those men are worth their weight in gold, even if they're not capable or interested in putting on a glitzy rock and roll show. Something to consider. Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith 
I want to point this out. Um, uh, a couple of days ago, I did the Is the Gospel, Is Not the Gospel uh, series of tweets over at uh, at Twitter. And uh, one of the things I found really interesting is is that, well, it doesn't surprise me. I've, I've experienced this before in personal conversation with people who are in the emergent church and, and progressive and liberal circles. Uh, they really honestly think that feeding the poor is the gospel, and it's not. Social justice, feeding the poor, uh, correcting institutional sins is not the gospel. Now, it is absolutely a fruit of the gospel. And we Christians would do well to not let the poor in our midst be invisible to us, but instead reach out to them in mercy and kindness and care for our brothers and sisters in need, even if they're not our Christian brothers. They are brothers to us through Adam and Eve. We would do well to love our neighbors and to care for the poor and to care for them properly. But that's not the gospel. And so I'm going to talk today a little bit about feeding the poor, how it is not the gospel. And we're going to take a look at John chapter 6, because I think this makes the, the case very, very clearly. Okay. And then... um Prior to probably prior to that, we're going to, oh, man, just put a uh, museum piece, an exhibit up at the Museum of Idolatry. I am the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. A kind of a weird, <clears throat> I understand that's one of those bizarre types of websites. I collect idolatry. And as the curator of the Museum of Idolatry, the things that I've been collecting over the years are available for you to visit and take a look at. At the Museum of Idolatry, the website is a littleleaven.com, and um, the, it, it's the world's largest collection of artifacts of apostasy. And uh, we just added a, a new exhibit today, a YouTube video from a, a, a First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, and I've named the exhibit Cash for Converts. Remember the Cash for Clunkers program? Well, I mean, do you have any old Muslims lying around, you know... And you like to convert them, you know, convert them for cash. <laughs> that was Brad, Brad Grierson's uh, quip that he left on my Facebook wall. Anyway, we'll be looking, listening to the audio from this video on what we call cash for converts. I, I, I really think that this is crass and the wrong way of going about evangelism. But uh, we'll take a look at that. Um, and then I want to read what I consider to be a very informative article from the Huffington Post entitled Getting in Front of Jesus, the Politics of Progressive Christianity, written by a progressive. And I think it's worth it's worth reading and passing along to you because it's always important that, especially in light of the fact that uh, I think that liberal Christianity is a cult. I, I think it's absolutely off the rails. It isn't biblical Christianity. It's it's a cult within Christianity itself. Um, I, I'm thinking along the lines in the same categories of, of Walter Martin. You know, he did a uh, we've played two different lectures by Walter Martin here in the past called the cult of uh, liberalism. Um, anyways, I think it's important to understand them and to get a radar fix on them. So by understanding them and listening to them, we're, we're be better able to know where to ask the the questions and to debunk and refute the false teaching so that we can placard Christ. Now, understand this. As an apologist, as somebody who's been trained in apologetics and, uh, and, and part of what we do here is apologetics, 
Um, I always understood apologetics to basically kind of be um, to fall into the realm of the law. Okay, the apologetics is not the gospel. the The idea behind apologetics is to give a, a defense and to disarm somebody who has false ideas or false reasonings by which they won't hear the gospel. The goal of apologetics is to move those things off the table so that you can then do evangelism, which is proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. So that's just something to keep in mind. And then uh, then to kind of round out the hour, we're going to be listening to um, Andy Stanley, uh, the the younger uh, interviewing business guru Jim Collins, author of the book Good to Great from the 2008 Catalyst Conference. And uh, you got to hear this. I, uh, one, of the th- one of the recurring themes that we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith is how the seeker-driven guys um, have created this leadership cult. Um, you know, we, two times that we use the word cult today. Yeah, these guys are absolutely obsessed with leadership. For them, apostasy or heresy would be you using or applying the wrong leadership principles um, <clears throat> as opposed to preaching and teaching false doctrine. And I think this kind of makes the point really well, and there's a particular thing in this interview that I think is really important for you all to hear. And so I'll point that out and flag it uh, when we get there. And then today's uh, sermon review... Um, I didn't write this down in my program notes. Uh, it comes from uh, North Point uh, Church in uh, Springfield, Missouri. North Point is the uh, is the uh, church that um, has the Star Trek logo as the as their logo. And uh, anyway, uh, they, they recently they're currently in the middle of their God at the Movies sermon series, and uh, so we're going to be reviewing their sermon based upon the movie Avatar. And the reason I picked this particular sermon is because um, it, um, the the, uh, the pastor there, hang on a second, I forget his name, hang on a second here, let me Google him for, for a second, North Point Church in Springfield, Springfield, Missouri, here we go, um, North Point Church, yeah, I, I want to make sure I got the uh, the pastor's name right because I had forgotten his name. And I, I think it's important that you all know who he is, too. Let's see. Contact us, adults, students. Anyway, I'll, I'll find his name. Um, Tommy, no, is it Tommy Sparger? No, hang on a second here. Um, let's see here. Yeah, that's his name. It's it's Tommy Sparger of uh, North Point Church there in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, I picked this one not because not just because he preaches on the movie Avatar, but because he, the sermon that he presents is um, based upon the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's, I mean, you'll you say what well, you say it's about Avatar. Yeah, I understand. These seeker-driven guys, a lot of times when they're preaching on movies, it's kind of a bait and switch technique that they're engaging in. And um, and so when he, after you know, he gets done using Avatar as the bait. You find out that the sermon is based upon the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is a fantastic parable for law and gospel. Okay, and there's certain things theologically that Tommy does right in this sermon, and there's some very important things that he completely misses, and um, it, it might be just he he doesn't know to look for these things, and he may not have been trained to understand them. I don't know. But it is absolutely clear that he messes up 
this the preaching of the sermon because he brings things into that passage that are not there, just that are not there at all. And as a result of it, he misses the great gospel punchline in uh, the, the in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But the the whole premise behind it is, is this is a sermon based upon the movie Avatar. <laughs> To which you just sit there and go, oh, good night. Yeah, it's, you know, I've described Avatar as, and I think he uses, I think he even describes it the way I did. I, I explained to somebody back when it came out, it uh, reminds me of Dances with Wolves in Space, you know, and I think Sparger has kind of a similar idea. But anyway, we're going to be listening to Tommy Sparger preach on the movie Avatar, and then the text that he'll dive into after he does the bait and switch is uh, is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the Gospel of Luke. So lots of ground to cover today, and um, make yourself comfortable. <laughs> you're thinking, Roseboro, you're already how many minutes into this thing, and you're telling us to get comfortable now? Yeah, well, if you, were, if you weren't comfortable before, please feel free to get comfortable now. And by the way, if you don't have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, you can find them by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. Look on the right, on the sorry, the left-hand side of the uh, webpage there, just a little bit down, you see... <laughs> The link to that was uh, Mr. Ben Mordecai's uh, idea, and I don't know why I listened to him <laughs> because he gave me a good email the other day. Okay, so with that, uh, let's dive into the program proper. And um, well, I think this might be the the music that I think I should be playing for these kind of segments in the future. Here, hang on. Yeah, that's the sound of a calliope. Reminiscent of the circuses. Yeah, when we do circus church type updates, I think this might be the thing to play. You know what? Maybe I. Let's see. Is this one better? Yeah, maybe we'll play that one instead. That's right. For our circus church segment. This um, <clears throat> this museum exhibit at the Museum of Idolatry comes to us from First Baptist Church, Hammond, Indiana. How much is a soul worth? One buck? One buck? Two? Have you figured out your dollar to uh, church visitor ratio yet? How much is your church willing to pay per visitor? Ten dollars? Eleven? Twelve? Twelve fifty, you say? Yeah, let me kill this music. Yeah, the reason I'm asking these questions is because. Uh, the folks over at First Baptist Church uh, <clears throat> recently um, were giving away cash prizes uh, to uh, members of their congregation who had brought visitors um, to their church and um, and uh, to decide which, which cash prize they could potentially win, they actually wheeled uh, kind of a stand-up version of the Wheel of Fortune wheel uh, you know, with the, the paddle wheel, click, 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 click. Yeah, those things. They, they put different prizes under each of the different, uh, wheel segments. And, um, 
Yeah, partway through this, you're going to hear the pastor, uh, Pastor Shap, um, actually give what he what, he does some quick calculations and calculates uh, that uh, the church is only paying twelve dollars and fifty cents per visitor. Yeah, it, uh, what a bargain! What a deal! Yeah, uh, <clears throat> here's um, here's the audio from this video. This last Sunday, uh, these are preliminary numbers. Now, now, what you don't see, if you want to see this video, you just go to a11.com and look for the Museum of Ex- Exhibit entitled Cash for Converts. Yeah, this is the Cash for Converts program there at First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana. And what you don't see is that they're wheeling in this uh, Wheel of Fortune wheel right now. Uh, these, um, uh, we'll get the final tallies in a few days. Um, Grand total so far in all of our ministries of First Baptist Church, 16,897. We had 1,401 visitors. We had 7,687 come by bus ministry. Boy, yeah, yeah, they have some pretty good accounting people there. 594 salvations, 333 baptisms. That's a mighty good Sunday, I tell you what, and uh, very proud of you folks for doing a great job. Now... As we've outlined it for the uh, fall program with our different section leaders and such, we have these people who are going to get a chance to uh, spin for a special prize. The prizes are all listed on the wheel right here, and they'll just come up and spin it in just a moment. Spin it, and wherever it lands, that's what you get. And we've got some great prizes. Tim, you're up for number one. So here's the uh, first member of First Baptist Church uh, who has an opportunity, based upon his performance in bringing visitors to First Baptist Church, and uh, he has an opportunity now to uh, spin the wheel for some wonderful cash prizes. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. It is Ziggy's Funland, two hundred fifty dollars. Woohoo! Ziggy's Funland. What's that? <laughs> Tim and Betty are going to have fun on those go karts. I tell you what. Yeah, he looks like an old guy. I don't know if he would have fun on go-karts. That's oh. awesome. But that... Right. Hey, they're cheering for you. Right on. A little bit. Two Spin people cheering wheel. for you. Uh-huh. Oh! <laughs> Best Buy. <laughs> you get to go to Texaco and get gas. All right, here we go. Best Buy, $250. $250 uh, gift certificate at Best Buy. Wow! Well, that's not bad, is it? And that's pretty uh, nice. All right. Brother Keith Cowling. Spin it. All right. Come on, big money, big money, big money. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big uh, money. Oh, man. Oh, your wife's happy? You got Elber's Jewelers for $250. Woohoo! $250 at Elber's Jewelers. Way to praise Jesus. <laughs> Awesome. Man. For the pancreas. Now, listen carefully. You're going to hear uh, Pastor Schaap's, um quick calculations here. That's $12.50 for a visitor. That's... Yeah, what a great ratio. It's only twelve fifty for a visitor. Wow. Not bad. That was a pathetic. <laughs> Alberts, you and Keith can go buy some for each other. <laughs> Paul... All right, Brother Henry. Come on, big money, big money. I want to buy a vowel. Come on. Rudy's cheering everybody on here. 
Oh, yeah. Cabela's, $250. Woohoo! $250 at Cabela's. Wow! Praise the Lord! Oh, man. Is it me? I mean, I think that this is just crass. And, uh, you know, could you imagine having to explain this to your neighbor? Seriously. I mean, your neighbor comes up to you and says, you know, hey, um, <clears throat> just want to talk to you for a second. Sure, what's up? Um, you know, um, I found out that you won a $250 cash prize. Um, good at the jeweler's, jeweler's shop. Uh, and, um, the way that you were eligible to win that $250 cash prize was by inviting me to your church. Is that how much you think my soul is worth? Two, 250 bucks? And then you might say, well, well, you know, listen, uh, you know, things have been a little rough, you know, for me financially. So, you know, I figured, you know, it couldn't hurt to invite you and a bunch of other people to church. In fact, uh, the more people I invited, the greater chance I had at winning one of those cash prizes. You know, it's nothing personal. Yeah, you see the neighbor just, you know, I I thought you actually cared about me and my soul. Hmm. I I guess I was wrong. And um, now that I really understand your motivation for inviting me to church, yeah, I'll never be setting foot in your church again. You know, um... I'm sorry to hear that you're not coming to our church, but you know, I it's you know, I was just thinking about this. You know, our church is giving away a trip to Hawaii next month, and since you obviously won't be competing for that uh, trip to Hawaii, do do you know any other people that you can like introduce me to so that I can invite them to church? You know, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, and and being as you're my friend and my neighbor, I mean, I'm sure you want me to win that, right? Yeah, see, um, these ideas sound like, oh yeah, we gotta do whatever it takes to, to grow the kingdom of God. The problem is, is that these types of things pretty much just reduce people down to cash prizes. And really make it so maybe your motivation for doing, for inviting somebody to church isn't that you really care about them. Not that you really want to share the gospel with them, but really, you're just, more or less doing something so that you could potentially be lining your pocket. Ah, yeah, something's just way wrong with that. All right, we're up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about how feeding the poor is not the gospel. We'll be taking a look, a quick look at John chapter 6, and, uh, and then I uh, got that uh, article from the Huffington Post on uh, uh, the politics of progressive Christianity. And then we got the uh, Catalyst interview with uh, Jim Collins. So you don't want to miss any of that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. 
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning. Giving away cash prizes for converts or visitors to your church may not be the best of ideas. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, and you will not, under any circumstances, be eligible for cash prizes for doing so. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by uh, clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. Um, Real quick, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I want to point out something to you. There, Many in the progressive, emergent, and liberal camps uh, who absolutely deny uh, Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross, his vicarious death on the cross for our sins, um, and uh, really completely deny what Scripture says of, about Christ and what he's done and redefined it in such a way that, that the offense of the cross is gone— um, have basically turned the gospel into us doing good for the poor. Now, I want to make this clear up front. We Christians must, ought to, are set free in Christ to care for the poor and to love our neighbor. It's, it's, a, it's something that we ought to be doing and is a natural fruit of the faith and repentance that Christ has given to us. That being the case, though, it's not the gospel. This is not the good news at all. And uh, and th- this is a great passage to take folks to, to kind of make the point. So I'm going to begin John chapter 6, starting at verse 1. If you want to follow along in your Bible, that would be great. I will be reading from the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. I lovingly refer to it as the English Sanctified Version. I read, now after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Remember yesterday we were talking about contextualization. Um, John here is writing to a Gentile audience, and how do we know that? Because what he does here is is that he says that Jesus went to the uh, other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, those who are native to Judea would refer to it, or the Jews, they would refer to it as the Sea of Galilee, 
But to the rest of the Gentile Roman world, they don't know where the Sea of Galilee is. However, they may have heard of the Sea of Tiberias. So really quick to, quote, contextualize, and this move right along because, I mean, it doesn't take much more contextualization than this. John makes the point of basically saying the Sea of Galilee, by the way, is the Sea of Tiberias, in case you weren't clear. And a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing uh, on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd uh, that a large crowd was co- coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, "Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat?" He said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered to him, "Well, two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread." For each of them to even get a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Okay, now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so they, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Okay, So Jesus feeds them. He sees they're they're hungry, and he miraculously feeds them. Is that the gospel? No. Watch. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, and when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I, do not be afraid.'" Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there, that there had only there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the, his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, now watch this, or listen, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has sent his seal. Now, Jesus at this point is making a distinction between laboring for food that perishes as opposed to food that endures to eternal life. Okay, Jesus now is talking about on two completely different tracks. He set up a dichotomy. One is one is eternal. One is temporal. 
Okay. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, not your work, but God's work, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose, uh, uh, that I should lose nothing of uh, all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So in Jesus' own words, in Jesus' own teaching, Food that perishes is not the gospel. He wants to give people the food that endures to eternal life, and it is him. He is the bread of life. So when it comes to feeding people or feeding the poor, the gospel is not giving away temporal food or working for temporal means, temporal bread. Instead, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent, and Jesus is that one, and he is the bread of life. So those who think that the gospel is feeding the poor, they're in direct contradiction to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not about working for food that perishes, but to giving himself. When you eat the bread of life, Jesus Christ, you will never hunger or never thirst again. He's giving you an eternal bread, and that's the gospel, okay? So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, well, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written of the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my own flesh. The gospel is not feeding the poor with temporal bread. 
It's giving the poor the eternal bread, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and his broken and crushed and crucified body for given for our sins. That's what we're called to do. Feeding the poor is not the gospel, because feeding the poor, you can only feed them with temporal bread. But when you preach the gospel, you are preaching and proclaiming the eternal bread of life, Jesus Christ. Any pagan, any pagan can give bread to a poor person, but only Christians can offer somebody who's poor the eternal bread of life, Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. That's the gospel, and that's the bread that we are to offer to all of the world's poor. Even the rich among us who are still among the world's poor, because all of us by nature are poor, miserable sinners, lost sheep for whom Christ died and for whom Christ is seeking. Okay, moving along. There's an article I want to read from the... um, from the uh, Huffington Post entitled Getting in Front of Jesus, the Politics of Progressive Christianity, Part 1, by Brad R. Braxton, ordained Baptist minister and distinguished visiting scholar, McCormick Theological Seminary. Okay, I think this is an informative piece and worth passing along, so let me read what... um, uh, the Reverend Braxton writes, he says, Parishioners in the church of my childhood often sang the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The hymn cautioned disciples about turning away from Jesus. This essay explores the prospect of being disciples by getting in front of Jesus. I, I just know. <clears throat> I should probably keep my commentary to a... Um, to a seriously. I mean... We need to get in front of Jesus, really. Yeah. Uh, what? If, how about if we get to like to the side of Jesus? How about the you know? Can we get to like the right side or the left side? <sighs> maybe we can kind of be just you know somewhat kind of in front of him, or maybe just right to the back behind him. The, the, by the way, these kinds of descriptions don't make any sense. To follow a person usually means walking behind that person. Could it be, however, that we follow Jesus most faithfully when we walk ahead of Jesus? I argue for a progressive Christianity that extends the meaning and mission of Jesus. Okay, now that's a key phrase. He's, uh, Doctor, well, Pastor Braxton says that he's arguing for um, a progressive Christianity that quote extends extends the meaning and mission of Jesus. Wow. That's quite a confession. By whose authority are you extending and expanding the mission of Jesus? Anyway, so I argue for progressive Christianity that extends the meaning and mission of Jesus into the present and future rather than promoting an obsession with the past. Defining progressive Christian and prophetic evangelical interchangeable terms for me will facilitate a discussion of the politics of progressive Christianity. According to some accounts, the term progressive Christianity surfaced in the 1990s and began replacing the more traditional term liberal Christian. During this period, some Christian leaders wanted to increasingly identify an approach to Christianity that was socially inclusive 
conversant with science and culture and not dogmatically adherent to theological litmus tests, such as, as a belief in the Bible's inerrancy. The emergence of contemporary Christian progressivism was a refusal to make the false choice of redeeming souls or redeeming social order. Yeah, let, let, let me read that again. The emergence of contemporary Christian progressivism was a refusal to make the false choice of redeeming souls or redeeming the social order. In the 1990s, many mainline Christian denominations were, and some still are, experiencing a significant decline in membership and cultural influence. The malaise in mainline Christianity occurred as some fundamentalist and conservative Christian communities experienced growth in the United States and across the globe. There are nuances between fundamentalist and conservative Christian denominations, yet fundamentalist and conservative Christian communities united in the public square to form the Christian Right, a network that also included affiliated political, educational, and cultural organizations. Even the casual observer of culture and politics can identify the considerable influence of the Christian Right on public life in the United States during the last 40 years. This influence has extended all the way to the White House. For example, the historian Randall Balmer explores the impact of the Christian right upon the perspectives and decisions of President George W. Bush in his book, God in the White House. During the last four de decades, it, is it often seemed, at least from the media standpoint, that all Christians were either fundamentalist or conservative. Yet there are countless persons like me whose understanding of the approaches uh, to Christianity are vastly different from those in the Christian right. We, too, profess to be followers of Jesus. Consequently, we're striving to define and live a type of Christianity that is theologically flexible and hospitable to social diversity. With that broad history in place, let me give a, a further shape to the definition of progressive Christian. Progressive Christians believe that sacred truth is not frozen in the ancient past while respecting the wisdom of the past. Progressive Christians are open to the ways truth is moving forward in the present and future for the betterment of the world. Progressive Christianity recognized that our sacred texts and authoritative traditions must be critically engaged and continually reinterpreted in light of contemporary circumstances to prevent religion from becoming a relic. As a progressive Christian, I believe that Jesus came to transform social relationships as well as improve people's individual spiritual conditions. I also believe that some of God's noblest aspirations for our world are still being revealed and that our understanding of those divine intentions is being refined. The pastor and theologian James Forbes rightly insists that Jesus was progressive and was open to having his understanding of truth and love broadened. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're so open-minded, your brain fell out. This is ridiculous. I mean, so the one absolutely unflexible truth is that truth is flexible. You see the self-defeating proposition here? So is it any wonder why liberals and progressives and emergents engage in speculative theology and all of this stuff that sounds so spiritual is really just ridiculousness? See, because 
They're trying to figure out where God is going because things are moving and, and we're trying to expand and, and he, and, and we can't, we can't go, we can't be a relic and just hang on to that authoritative inerrant. We have to engage the Bible critically, but what we don't want to engage critically is where the new truth is. We got to go and find it because God's somewhere out there doing something new. We got to find what that new thing is. <clears throat> Consequently, those of us who bear Jesus' name should creatively replicate Jesus' progressive stance. Really? <laughs> what was Jesus' progressive stance? Following Jesus requires us to turn our faces as much to the present and future as to the past. The good news of the gospel is progressively unfolding itself and inviting us to proceed with faith and flexibility instead of unyielding an unyielding set of narrowly defined rigid doctrines by the way um claiming that you believe um in a flexible faith they hold that belief rigidly see the self-defeating proposition <clears throat> the discussion of the term progressive christian prompts an exploration of another important term prophetic evangelical in the contemporary media, the term evangelical has become a synonym for fundamentalist or conservative Christians. This should not be the case, but often is, since media leaders are tempted by convenient binaries and caricatures of religion. The term evangelical is der derived from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news or simply gospel. Broadly speaking, all Christians should be ev evangelical in the sense that they are bearing witness to the good news that God's love, justice, and peace are revealed in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Notice what's missing. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You see, when somebody is calling for these broad, new, unfolding understandings of the gospel, the thing that gets left in the dust is the scandal of the cross. Christ's bloody, propitiatory, penal substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Yet in light of the media's assumption that all evangelicals are fundamentalists or conservative, many progressive Christian leaders are now modifying the word evangelical with the adjective prophetic, thereby creating the term prophetic evangelical. Prophetic religion involves a willingness to interrupt as unjust status quo so that the more people might experience peace and prosperity. The theologian Peter Heltzel suggests the prophetic evangelical seeks to blend vibrant personal piety with a political radicalism that leads to social justice. Prophetic evangelicalism insists that Jesus came to save not only uh, from our personal sins, but also from the systematic sins that oppress neighborhoods and nations. Jesus presented his central theme in social and political terms. He preached and taught consistently about the kingdom of God, God's beloved community, where social differences no longer divide and access to God's abundance is equal. Prophetic evangelicals are deeply devoted to Jesus and based on that devotion, deeply committed to transforming the social order so that marginalized and mistreated people might enjoy God's abundance. Consequently, a prophetic evangelical, I believe in Jesus and also and I also believe in what Jesus believes in justice. The theologian Carl Lackey Hess offers a sweeping definition of justice. Justice, which includes the defeat of oppressive forces, involves recognizing, engaging, and dispersing power among those 
uh, who differ from one another, liberating faith and practices, feminist practical theologies in context, page 57. As a son of the African-American church and prophetic evangelicalism as part of my religious CNA, African-American evangelical Christians who understood that Jesus and justice go hand in hand led some of the greatest social reform movements in the United States. For example, the abolition of slavery and the civil rights movement were largely a result of prophetic evangelicalism of African-American Christians. These Christians provided a compelling model of how polity and politics can merge to make a nation and even a world better. This is why progressive Christians everywhere need to do a better job of recognizing and respecting allies in the African-American churches, many of whom have never accepted the false choice of souls or social order. Conservative Christianity is a contradiction in terms. We have witnessed recently some versions of conservative Christianity that seemingly raise the American flag equal or higher than the cross of Christ. These versions define patriotism as an unquestioning allegiance to the dominance of American practices and policies. The biblical scholar Oberly Hendricks insists that some conservative Christian groups have allowed uncritical patriotism to blunt the prophetic edge of the gospel. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. To some sense, I would agree. Um, Americanism is not the gospel. Quote, in our time when many seem to think Christianity goes hand in hand with right-wing visions of the world, it's important to remember that there has never been a conservative prophet. Prophets have never been called to conserve social orders and have strained inequities of power and privilege and wealth. Prophets have always been called to change them so all can have access to the fullest fruits of life. What prophets are he, is, is he reading? I, uh, <clears throat> Uh, while prophetic evangelicalism respects the rights and privileges of citizenship, it also recognizes that our citizenship in God's commonwealth necessitates that we pledge allegiance more to the cross than to the flag. Yet yeah, we, we have to progress, you know, pledge allegiance to the ever-expanding and re-interpretive unfolding views of the cross. <clears throat> When we are more committed to the cross than to the flag, we find the moral courage to be true patriots. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, that towering prophetic evangelical of the last century, demonstrated how prophetic uh, commitments led to genuine patriotism. On April 4, 1967, King delivered his famous address, A Time to Break Silence. He called for an end to the Vietnam War and directly opposed the policies of President Lyndon Johnson, with whom he had collaborated on the civil rights issues. In that address, King defined for us the true meaning of a a Patriot Act. A Patriot Act is not questionable legislation enabling a government to eavesdrop on innocent citizens. A Patriot Act is clarion proclamation calling a government to do right by its citizens and the citizens of the world. King showed us that patriots love their country enough to tell the truth, even if the price for truth is laying down one's life. With all due respect to my conservative Christian friends, it seems to me that the terms conservative and Christian are contradictory. Jesus was not a conservative. He laid down his life in a struggle against the conservative forces of the of Roman imperialism. No, he laid down his life willingly to atone for our sins. Notice how Jesus' cross here is reinterpreted politically. Jesus was a revolutionary. He died not of old age, but met death similar to that of his revolutionary mentor, John the Baptist. What? (laughs) When Jesus stepped into the Jordan to be baptized, he declared allegiance to God's revolution, which meant he could not pledge allegiance to Rome's inhumane agenda. 
Jesus was so committed to his mission of creating communities of love and inclusion that he willingly died for it. For justice, Jesus lived and died. For justice, God raised Jesus from the dead. Really, for justice. Uh, The resurrection serves notice that injustice and oppression and death and the death it brings will never have the last word. Consequently, following Jesus does not simply mean repeating what Jesus said. It involves taking the stories and principles of Jesus and the movement founded in his name and going ahead of him into new and challenging context. It also means speaking words of truth to brokers of power, advancing unholy agendas. Now, I'm going to pause there. This is a very long article. That's our installment today. But I'm going to continue uh, reading through this because... It's important for you to hear what progressive Christianity is in progressive Christianity's own words. Okay, one more thing before we go to our second break. Now, I've been saying for a while that the uh, folks in the seeker-driven movement are part of a leadership cult. These guys have completely overdosed on MBA books when they really should be putting those aside and uh, in opening up their biblical commentaries, opening up their Greek and Hebrew uh, scriptures, uh, the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, and spending more time studying God's Word so that they can correctly handle it and rightly teach it. But instead, these guys are like obsessed with um, leadership and business books. I mean, they've basically, this is talk about an unholy alliance. Here is uh, audio from a video put out by the uh, Catalyst folks, uh, the, which is you know, basically one of the more premier leadership conferences offered to pastors. And uh, here is Andy Stanley, uh, the, the younger, interviewing Jim Collins of uh, Good to Great. I won't play all of this, but you'll get uh, pretty much the gist of what's going on. And I, there's a particular thing I want you to hear. Okay, here we go. Talk specifically because we live in the world of mercy and grace, and people often, so people get the wrong person on the bus, but it's a single mom, it's the wrong person on the bus, but they've had a hard time, wrong person on the bus, but we don't like to... Okay, if you have not read Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great, and you're not familiar with his writings, work, articles, books, etc., one of the things that Jim Collins tells business leaders is basically it's important to get the right people on the bus. The bus is your organization, Okay. And it's not only important to get the right people on the bus, it's important to get the the right people in the right seats on the bus. That's the metaphor that uh, that we're talking about here. Now, I can't prove it, but I'm absolutely convinced the idea of being thrown under the bus, uh, being thrown under the bus probably comes from, I think it has its genesis uh, in the business world from people who've been fired because they were considered to be the wrong people on the bus. Uh, I noticed, um, you know, maybe eight uh, eight years ago or so, uh, when that term first started making the rounds, that it, it seemed to coincide with the, all this bus talk in the business world about having the right people on the bus. So if you've heard the term being thrown under the bus, now I can't prove it, but I think it is actually linked to this uh, to Jim Collins's ideas. Fire people. So in our culture, it is a very grace-filled, mercy-filled culture. As we would probably argue, businesses should be as well. We're not unique, but we think we are as churches. Can you talk about that tension? 
Maybe sure. not. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, let me just actually respond to that. You know, if a company loses money, that's yeah, bad, but if a school fails to educate its children. Okay, now listen. Okay. Jim Collins is not a theologian. He's talking kind of from a business secular world kind of thinking. What he just said, if a school fails to educate children. If a military leader makes mistakes and its soldiers get blown up. Right. If a homeless center fails to do its work well and someone freezes on the street. Where does your responsibility lie? Okay, now I'm going to fill in a missing um, important thing here. If a pastor fails to do his job to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and to teach the full counsel of the word of God and people go to hell as a result, that's what we're talking about here, translating it into church talk. I have an MBA, though. It's the work. As opposed to, do not, and, and you may have, the your first response, if, if somebody is the wrong person and someone's going to freeze on the street, someone's the wrong person, your soldiers are going to get blown up, someone's the wrong person, and those kids are not going to read by the end of grade three, your responsibility is to the kids, to your soldiers, to the homeless people first. Okay, now people are clapping. I find this ironic because uh, we review a bazillion different seeker-driven uh, sermons here uh, from guys who are in attendance, sitting in the audience at this event. And, um, you know, using what Jim Collins just said here, I mean, do you think that God's word doesn't give the, uh, basically give the outlines for what is expected from a pastor, what his responsibilities are? Let me read from Titus chapter 1. Starting at verse 5, Paul writing to Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward, who steward God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead he must be hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole communities by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach one of their one of the cretans a prophet of their own said cretans are always liars evil beasts and lazy gluttons well this testimony is true therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth okay so, um, as for you, uh, chapter two, verse one, as for you teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So here in God's word, we are given, this is one of the pastoral epistles. 
we're given an outline of the responsibilities of a pastor. Okay, now he, they're interviewing Jim Collins, and he's talking about if a, if a teacher doesn't do their job and kids don't read, if a, somebody in a homeless shelter doesn't do, do their job and somebody freezes to death and die, if a if a soldier doesn't do their job and and soldiers die as a result of it. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. But we have to translate this into church speak. If a pastor doesn't do dispense the duties of his office, the things he's been given responsibility to do, and somebody goes to hell, they are the wrong person on the bus. They should not be driving the church bus, using Jim Collins' metaphor. But anyway, I've hijacked his speech here. Let's continue. Uh That's level five. This is a really, really important lesson for those of us in church leadership because we lose sight of our mission and vision. We focus on individuals, which obviously there has to be. Hang on a second here. I want you to hear that again. It was subtle. It went by quickly. Listen again. Really important lesson for those of us in church leadership because we lose sight of our mission and vision. We lose sight of our mission and vision. Subtle, isn't it? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. If you've listened to this program, go back and listen to the stuff I've, I've talked about, leadership and vision casting. The seeker-driven leadership method teaches pastors that they can receive a direct vision from God as to what he wants to do with their particular church. The seeker, What Andy Stanley here is basically reinforcing is this idea is, oh, well, a lot of these guys who are here in attendance, they lose sight of their mission, their the, their unique mission and vision that they've been given from God. May I make a point? Individual congregations do not get the privilege of coming up with their own mission and vision. That belongs to Jesus Christ. And the mission and vision that he has laid out for the church don't get to change. They are they they've been given to us and we are to do it until the end of the age. They can be respectively found in Matthew chapter twenty eight in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo I am with you always, even until the end of the age. In other words, that's what we're to be about doing, the church is to be about doing until Christ returns. And couple that with Luke chapter twenty four. 46, 47, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in my name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. These guys are interested in false visions and false mission statements that they believe are from God, but they're not. They contradict the mission and vision given by Jesus. And what Andy Stanley here is basically teaching these guys, they need to be true to the mission and vision that they've been given. And uh, and here's Jim Collins to kind of reinforce that thing. No. Um, pastor, the, the, the responsibilities of pastor have been laid out in Scripture, and they don't change. They stay the same until Christ comes back. We focus on individuals, which obviously there has to be a focus on individuals, but to the neglect of mission and vision. I love that. You know what? And you're... I guess it was good to great. You talk about um, 
the sort of the litmus test for you as it relates to the right or wrong people. And one of them is if you secretly wish this person would resign and if they resigned, you would yeah. secretly celebrate. Yeah. 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 Talk, like, talk about that just a so second. We're so sorry to see you go. <laughs> uh, and your point about that is? Well, my, my, actually, let me, let, me, let me say two things. First of all, um, the moment you feel the need to tightly manage someone, you've probably made a hiring mistake. Okay, say that again. Listen, listen, listen. The moment you feel the need to tightly manage someone, you might have made a hiring mistake. The right people don't need to be managed. They need to be led. They need to be guided. They need to be taught. But the right people are self-motivated, self-disciplined, self-managed. And by the way, I think the secret to, for those of us who are now a little almost halfway, um, to working with young people is to not manage them. It's to help them understand you don't have a job. You have responsibilities. And I'm not going to tell you how to fulfill those responsibilities. I'm not going to tell you what hours to work. I'm, going to tell you what, I'm not going to tell you what stupid rules to follow. I'm not going to put those kinds of constraints on you. But you will succeed with your responsibilities. And when you take that approach, that's the right people will rise to that. Yep. The ones you have to step in and say, you need lots of help. Okay. Now, okay, just using Jim Collins's, you know, ideas here, we have to conclude that the majority of seeker-driven pastors are the wrong guys on the bus because they're not fulfilling their responsibilities. Plain and simple. In fact, they're shirking them and demeaning people who rightly point out their biblical responsibilities as laid out in Titus, as laid out in First and Second Timothy. Interesting stuff. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Q 
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back, hour number two. We're well into it here at Fighting for the Faith. Time for a summertime movie on a uh, movie sermon, yeah. Yeah, Tommy Sparger over there at North Point Church. He's going to feel like I'm picking on him and I'm judging him. He'll just have to get over it because I'm not. Not the way he thinks. He's not above the Word of God and he needs to be held accountable to it. All right, so with that, we're going to uh, dive into our sermon review. It's time for our sermon review music. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes from one of last year's runner-ups for the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year Award. Um, Tommy Sparger from North Point Church, Springfield, Missouri. Sermon series entitled, God at the Movies. Sermon, Avatar. (laughs) Yeah, hang on, I'm choking. (laughs) I cannot believe anybody would preach on Avatar in the Christian church. I just... Whew. If you would like to uh, open up your Bibles, though, he will be uh, getting to um, Luke chapter 18. That will, Once he does the bait and switch, um, we'll be looking at Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, starting at verse 9. 
So if you want to go there, that's going to be important. But in order to understand a few things here, let me kill this. Before we get to the sermon, um, there's something that I think that must be read and uh, and understood here. One of the things I do is I review proper under- the proper understanding of law and gospel. So consider this the pre-sermon warm-up, uh, if you would, as far as Bible teaching is concerned. And I, if, if you uh, subscribe to the Letter of Mark blog, you can find that at letterofmarkmarque.us. And uh, I, I published something there the other day called No One Will Be Saved by Keeping the Great Commandment. This does a fine job of, uh, uh, of distinguishing between law and gospel. Here's what I wrote, and most of this is scripture, actually. Uh, many people mistakenly believe that the great commandment given to us by Jesus is the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. This great commandment is summarized as love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40 states, quote, Uh, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, it's very easy to mistakenly think that the great commandment is the central message of the gospel. However, this is a grave doctrinal and theological error to equate the great commandment with the gospel precisely because the great commandment is a succinct summary of the Mosaic law. So rather than comfort us, the great commandment actually condemns us. We are all sinners, and daily we are guilty of not loving God with all of our hearts and not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Therefore, the great commandment is not the gospel, and no one will be saved by keeping the great commandment. Instead, the great commandment was given in order to show us our sinfulness and our need for a savior. If we're going to be saved from the wrath of God, then we're going to need good news. Thankfully, the gospel announces that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day for our justification, and that we are saved by grace through faith as a gift and not by keeping the great commandment. Now, here are some of the uh, clearest passages in the scriptures that explain why the great commandment is not the gospel and how no one will be saved either in whole or in part by keeping the great commandment. Galatians chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 15 through chapter 3, verse 26 states, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed that in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, 
I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do I do not then nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if and let me translate this for you. If righteousness were through loving God and loving neighbor, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to be perfected by your flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Holy Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law, all who rely on loving God and loving neighbor, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and continually do them. Now it is evident that no one is declared righteous before God by loving God and loving neighbor. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made co- even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Think of a contract here. No one can change a contract once it's been signed. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then was the law added? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
Now, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified or declared righteous in God's sight by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith faith. Okay. Now this is important because in this, these passages, it sets up the dichotomy between law and gospel. Okay. If you don't properly understand what the biblical teaching is regarding law and gospel, you can easily make huge mistakes that muddle this distinction. And as a result of it, undercut and undermine and hamstring the biblical gospel itself. This is so critical. And this is important for you to realize and hear as we get ready to go into our sermon review. Now, if you would like to do some more reading on this, may I suggest Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 28, as well as Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25. Those will help round out uh, this teaching regarding the proper distinction of law and gospel. Now, with that as our foundation, here is Pastor Tommy Sparger of North Point Church in Springfield, Missouri, uh, preaching uh, on the, the movie Avatar. The movies, and we're kickstarting this first week uh, with the movie Avatar, and we'll show you some like clips throughout my talk tonight. But I just thought I would give you sort of my take on on Avatar. I saw it at the movie when it first came out. Saw it in 3D. Loved it. It's it's one of the you know rare 3D movies that I actually liked, and uh, I I remember this. I, I remember leaving that movie theater thinking this, and and in fact I think I tweeted it. But but here's what I thought of this movie: it is dances with wolves in blue. That's what Avatar is. Similar idea that I had. So watch both movies and tell me I'm wrong. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to snuff as to what Avatar is, and and then you'll kind of know what we're talking about. But Avatar is... Now, something to keep in mind, He's this is supposed to be relevant. But the reality is, is that um, only a percentage of people in, in, in America go and see movies with any regularity. Yeah. So uh, preaching about the movie seems to me seems to be counter relevant because, first of all, there's not a lot of cinema theater goers. It's only a percentage of the of the population and of the percentage of the population that regularly goes to movies. They don't see every movie that comes out. So, I mean, what percentage of the U.S. population went and saw the movie Avatar? 15, 20%. So Tommy Sparger, in his attempt to be relevant, the majority of the people there at this congregation probably haven't seen the movie, but they're aware of it. It's something to keep in mind. 
the story of this young man by the name of Jake Sully and his interaction with the Navi tribe. And what they are are creatures from the planet Pandora. Now, if you've never seen that movie, you're probably looking at me right now like I am on the best drug in town. But, but that is what this movie is. And through technology, Jake becomes like one of them. And he begins to fall in love with one of them. And, and, and as he's living with them, he begins to understand something. He begins to understand that the way of the tribe, the Navi, that they're actually more authentic and, and, and have a more pure lifestyle than that which he comes from or is accustomed to. So really, this movie is Kevin Costner meets the Smurfs. And, and that's just kind of my take on it. Now, now the number one takeaway that I have with this movie, and, and this is what I want to talk to you about today, is empathy. We're talking today about empathy. Now, when I say empathy, here's what I'm talking about. The ability to walk in their shoes. Okay, so the major theme that he's getting from the movie Avatar is empathy, and it's defined as walking in somebody's shoes. This is going to be the lens through which he interprets then Luke chapter 18. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector will be then interpreted through the lens of empathy. Now, this, I mean, this is a classic example of what's wrong with this approach to preaching, okay? Um, you, he begins with a movie because he's trying to be relevant, but the, the reality is the majority of the people in the congregation haven't seen the movie, so he has to explain it. He then, he then tries to distill down from a movie that is not biblical. In fact, I would even say Avatar is very anti-Christian in its themes, um, it's not biblical, and try to find some kind of a theme that he can then work passages into to support it. So he's he came up with the theme of empathy, and he thinks that Luke 18 is discussing empathy. Oh, see, the Bible verses are picked last in this way of doing preaching. However, if he had, if you would just chuck Avatar, get rid of coming up with the theme first, open up the biblical gospel text, and let the text stand on its own two feet, is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector about empathy? No, it's not. Listen, let me read it to you. Luke chapter 18, I begin at verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Jesus is telling this to people who are self-righteous, who are self-righteous people, self-righteous people who trust in themselves, basically trust in their own good works, their own keeping of the law, that somehow their good works and their keeping of the law gives them a right standing before God. That's what the text is teaching here. Okay? And this is what the passage I read from Galatians completely destroys. And so does this parable. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. So we're talking about people who thought they were better than others because they were better at, quote, keeping the law. 
Here's the parable. Two men went into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That means declared righteous rather than the uh, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector about empathy? No. It's about self-righteousness versus declared righteousness or imputed righteousness. Self-righteousness and your keeping the law and that giving you a right standing before God because you're pulling yourself up by your righteous bootstraps um, or realizing that you are a poor and miserable sinner who deserves nothing from God but instead but instead graciously receives the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. That's really what's going on here in Luke 18. But Tommy Sparger, because he's got the wrong starting place, he started with the movie Avatar, tried to find some kind of a theme, empathy, then tried to find some kind of a verse that he thought supported it, really found a passage that preaches the gospel, not empathy. Let's continue. To feel what they are feeling, to to see what they are seeing, to have compassion, to care, empathy. By the way, by the way, Jesus was really good at this. Sometimes his church, not so good. But Jesus was really good at this. See, I believe this. I think you can go through life with one of two attitudes. You can go through life with the attitude of superiority. And I know everything and I'm righteous and I got this thing down and smugness and self-righteousness and pride and I don't have anything to learn. You can go through life with, with that attitude or, or, or you can go through, through life with an attitude of grace, an attitude of humility. Forever the student, forever something to learn. I don't think humility is an attitude. No, I think humility comes about through the preaching of the law, which strips you of all self-righteousness and what you think makes you standing right before God and makes you realize you have nothing. That's not an attitude. That's coming to grips with reality. Empathy. Now, I came across something that I thought was kind of funny. This, I was looking at these two attitudes, and I was reading on this little article on the Internet, and, and, and it was talking about the difference between cats and dogs, because that's like two different attitudes. Okay, I want to point something out here. This little story about cats and dogs does not appear anywhere in the Bible. Just want to let you know, and this God loves both cats and dogs. He made them both. And, and you know, here's the thing. Dogs are humble. They are great creatures. God loves dogs. God created dogs. They're man's best friend. I have a yellow lab. He's the coolest dog God ever put on this planet. God loves dogs. 
Now, now, now that's one attitude. But then you have cats and they're different. Cat, cats are indifferent to everything. They are smug. They are self-righteous. We all know God hates cats. I mean, you know that. <laughs> he, you know, and you know this. Why did he create them? Because he has a golden chariot. He gets 100 points every time he runs one down. It's a game to him. So, kidding. Okay, whatever. Okay, chill. Now, now, now listen, listen. Thank you, crazy people. All right, all right. <laughs> so in, on the internet, I came across this article, and, and what it was was the journal entry of a dog and a cat, of, of, of the day of, in the life of a dog and, and a day in the life of a cat. So I'm going to read you the journal entry for a dog for a day, and then a journal entry for, for a cat. Two different attitudes. First of all, the dog. 8 a.m. This is his journal entry. Dog food. My favorite thing. 9.30, a car ride. My favorite thing. How many of you are dog owners? All right. 9.40, a walk in the park. My favorite thing. 10.30, got rubbed and petted. My favorite thing. Hey, 12 o'clock, lunch. My favorite thing. This is a dog. This is their attitude. 3 o'clock, wag my tail. My favorite thing. 5 o'clock, milk bones. My favorite thing. Eight o'clock. Wow. Watch TV with the people. My favorite thing. Woohoo. Eleven o'clock. Sleeping on the bed. My favorite thing. That, that's a dog. That's an attitude. That's the attitude of a dog. Now, now the journal entry for the day in the life of a cat. <clears throat> now, <laughs> here's the journal entry. Day 983 of my captivity. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. Today I was almost successful in an attempt to assassinate one of my tormentors by weaving around his feet as he was walking. I must try this again tomorrow, but at the top of the stairs. That's a cat. Beware. Beware, friends. It's, it's two attitudes. It's two attitudes. It's, it, it's, it's an attitude of humility and empathy, and, and it's an attitude of smugness and indifference. And, and on a very, you know, more serious note, I mean, some of you are here tonight, and you're trying to connect with church, but you remember a moment in your life when it was hard for you to connect with church and, and you didn't want to connect with church. And the only reason was it wasn't so much because of God, but, but you just kind of with the church, the church world or a Christian or a person or a person represented some way religion, you just were turned off by a lack of empathy. And that felt like anything but like Christ to you. And you felt like... Okay, now notice something here. He's not talking here about people's sins. He's t- you had, did you ever feel like you know, somebody in a church, you know, some smug, arrogant, uh, self-righteous person didn't have any empathy? Uh, this is victim stuff here. And a, oh, man. That or they were too judgmental or they didn't care about the poor or they had no tolerance for anyone with a different point of view. God forbid that you would disagree. They're too political. They're not understanding enough. And and so you just sort of disconnected and, and you didn't want any part of it. Now, on the flip side of that coin, though, some of you are here tonight because of a person, because of a church, because of a follower of Christ. Because of a parachurch organization like Convoy of Hope. But, but some, somewhere out there, somehow, you sensed empathy. You, you, you sensed compassion. And because of it, you said, listen, if this Christianity thing is anything like that person or that church or that organization or that institution, then something's right about this. And, and because of that, you're here. 
Now, now I, I want to make this point very clearly. If, if you look at the, in the context of the ministry and life and teachings of Jesus Christ, I don't believe anywhere you find that followers of Christ are commissioned to go out into all of the world and judge everybody. Not in this lifetime. I don't buy it. I don't. Uh, hang on a second here. Um, how do you define that? Because Scripture makes it clear that we are to judge. Think about what I just read from Titus earlier in the program. People who are teaching false doctrine, they need to be rebuked and rebuked sharply. Jesus calls down woes on the Pharisees. The Apostle Peter, when he's preaching at Pentecost, said, You killed the author of life. Said they were guilty of crucifying Jesus. And they were cut to the quick and said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So part of the ministry of Christianity in proclaiming the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, requires the Christian to proclaim what sins are, to point their bony fingers at people and say, you are guilty and stand condemned before God, and then offering the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. But that's not what I'm hearing here from Tommy Sparger, although at the very end of the sermon, I did listen all the way through, um, you're going to hear a very quick gospel nugget. But that's pretty much it. So this is kind of a rant against churches, though, uh, more so than anything at this point. I don't find it. I, I think we are to be discerning. I think we're to be smart. But Christians are not here to judge. We are here to, and this may be too sloppy a got before you, we are here to love, to show empathy. And, and I'll tell you this. Okay, um, you may be right, you may be wrong, uh, Tommy, but... The thing is, is that you said, I think. You you really need to stop giving us your opinions and open up the text. Show me from the clear teachings of the word of God in context, letting the passages dictate the agenda where these doctrines that you're saying you think is what Christians should be doing are found. This, I, I don't think anything can interfere with your spiritual walk more quickly than an attitude of superiority. And, and the truth is, Jesus... That's great. Um, again, open up the Bible and make your case from the Bible, not your opinions. You're not called to opine. You're called to proclaim God's word. Encounter this on many occasions. And I'm going to show you one of those moments when he encountered this attitude of self-righteousness. It's found in the book of Luke chapter 18. And, and we're going to take a look at this. One day Jesus is there and he's got these people that he's talking to and, and they have like zero empathy. Just <coughs> nada, nothing, no ability to see another's point of view. The text doesn't say that, by the way. Um, Again, let me read, giving you the setup here. Um, 
Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. The problem wasn't lack of empathy. The problem was self-righteousness. No ability to have compassion. No ability to say, you know, maybe you have a point. Maybe I don't know everything. That He's encountering people like this that, that, that have zero, zero empathy. And he, and he says this in, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It, it says to some, and this is his crowd. This is his audience that he's talking to. To some who were confident in, of their own righteousness. Woohoo, I'm holy. And, and look down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Now, a, a parable is, is a story to make a point. Now, now, let's stop just for a moment and look at his audience because you see two traits here. Jesus is not going to make any friends this day, by the way. There are two traits in this audience. They are, number one, confident in their own righteousness. Woo, we got it down, man. We are holy people, confident in their own righteousness. And number two, they look down on everybody else. And that is a scary combination. Now, because there's um, they were looking down on everybody else because of their self-righteousness. And this was not an attitude problem. It was much, much deeper than that. So confident in their own righteousness. Let us ask this question. What is the essence of real righteousness? Because if we're righteous, that means we're like God. So, so, so what is that? Now, here, I'm going to show you what I think it is, and, and I'm fine if you agree to disagree, but here's what I think. Now, I'm going to agree with him. He's going to take us to the great commandment, love God and love neighbor. That is the essence of righteousness. I think it is. You can find it in Matthew 22, and we'll come back to Luke 18 in a moment. But Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, it, Jesus was asked a question one day, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment and the law? And there are a lot of commandments. And so here's what Jesus does. He gives them the cliff notes of Christianity. Jesus replied, Look. Uh, no, Jesus didn't give them the cliff notes of Christianity. He gave them the cliff notes of the Mosaic law. That's the question. Look it up. Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment. Number one, you got to get number one down. And then, and then number going to be a short talk here, guys. Number two, ready? Second one's like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All of the law and the prophets. Now, if you ever read that in the New Testament, all the law and the prophets, that means the whole Old Testament. So Jesus is summarizing the Old Testament like in a couple of sentences. Right. Now, this is the law. It's not the gospel. This is the law. <clears throat> so immediately the question comes up. How's it working out for you? How were how are you doing it, loving God and loving neighbor? Now, understand when it comes to God's law, <clears throat> it's not graded on a curve. Um, you're either doing it or you're not. So, how's it working out for you? Like I said at the in, at the intro, the preview portion of our sermon review today. When I laid the biblical groundwork and foundation for it, the law condemns us. If you're not loving God and loving neighbor perfectly, sinlessly, then you're sinning. And so the law condemns us. But we read in Galatians, and you also read in, in Romans 3 and 4 very clearly, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight 
through the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is summed up as love God and love neighbor. The primary function of the law is to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. Now, it does show us what a good work is, but that's only for Christians. We're set free from sin, death, and the devil, and even the law, and set free to love our neighbor and to love God. But that's advanced stuff here. But that's not what he's doing here. He said that love God and love neighbor is the cliff notes of Christianity. No, it's not. It's not the cliff notes of Christianity. It's not even the cliff notes of of the gospel. The law is preached in preparation for the gospel. But this is not the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by loving God and loving neighbor. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Listen, listen, listen. Do you want to know what the essence of righteousness is? I believe it is love. It always was. It always is. It always will be love. And, and, and see, this audience of Jesus, they're not loving anyone. They're holding, and maybe you know people like that. Well, no, they were self-righteous. They thought they were loving God. And that's why they were looking down on other people, because other people weren't doing as well as they were. Like this, and, and, But they are holding people in contempt. That's the opposite of love. It's not only not righteous, it is, and remember, they think they're so holy, they're spiritual leaders. It's extremely unrighteous. So, so Jesus pulls up a rock. He sits down and says, I have a story for you. They're not going to like him after this. Back to Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. He tears a, tells a parable to make a point. Here's what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, when you and I hear Pharisee, you know, a lot of times we think bad guy. We're conditioned to think that because, you know, of all the stories we've heard in the New Testament. But during this day and age, Pharisees were the good guys. They were spiritual leaders. Everyone looked up to Pharisees. The tax collector is the one that no one looked up to. He's right. The tax collector is the bad guy. But Jesus tells his story. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I'm going to pray about myself. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. And he goes through his list. Everybody he's better than robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector that I'm saying this loud enough for him to hear. Now, now, now let, let me stop there for a moment. <clears throat> we all have a list. What's your list? And, and maybe it's, it's hard for you to even admit it, but, but who is the group? What is the list? You're like, well, at least I have them beat. That's what he's doing here. Now, now, now look, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The law had done its work. It's crushing work on the tax collector. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. That comes to us via Romans chapter 3. Now, I know I gave it to you as homework to read, <clears throat> but the verse you want, actually, it's verses uh, 19 and 20 in Romans chapter 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, 
The law is summarized as love God and love your neighbor. By works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of our sin. The tax collector prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The law had done its crushing work. He had no righteousness of his own whatsoever to speak of. He comes to God as a poor beggar with nothing to offer, completely spiritually bankrupt. And the sad part is that the Pharisee, he's as spiritually bankrupt as the tax collector but because he is so focused on his own self-righteousness, doesn't even see that that's reality. <clears throat> Tommy Sparger is kind of missing the point here, too. This is key, by the way, if you want to connect with God. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, make no mistake about this. This is so controversial. That there is no other rabbi during the time of Jesus running around telling stories where the hero in the story turns out to be a tax collector. It's not happening. So Jesus says, guys, listen, you're so confident in your own righteousness and you got all these things that you're doing and, and you're pretty proud of that and you're so cool you can look down on everybody else. Huddle up. I want to tell you a story. It's probably a story that will buy me a one-way trip to Calvary here in a couple of years, but I want to tell you a story. Listen up. In this story, there's a character just like you. He's exactly like you. He, he is really sure of his own righteousness in God's eyes. He's sure of that. So, so, so that's character number one. Character number two in this story is a character that you guys think is the scum of the earth. You wouldn't be in the same room with him. You wouldn't eat with this guy. So it's the way of you, holy and scum of the earth guy. Now, now in my story, the character like you is in worse condition than the character that you think is the scum of the earth. Jesus created unbearable tension to drive home a point that these people need to stop judging no, <clears throat> it's not that they need to stop judging. Let's go back to the text. This is why it's so important that you let the text dictate. This isn't a story about judging. It's a story about self-righteous people who are looking down at, at, in contempt on other people. The problem is self righteousness trusting in your self that's the what's going on here now i have an avatar uh movie clip that helps drive home this point so check this out everyone on this base every one of you is fighting for survival that's a fact there's aboriginal horde out there massing for an attack now, these orbital images tell me that the hostiles' numbers have gone from a few hundred to well over 2,000 in one day, and more are pouring in. In a week's time, there could be 20,000 of them. 
At that point, they will overrun our perimeter. Well, that's not going to happen. Our only security lies in preemptive attack. We will fight terror with terror. Now, the hostiles believe that this mountain stronghold of theirs is protected by their, their deity. And when we destroy it, we will blast a crater in their racial memory so deep that they won't come within a thousand clicks of this place ever again. And that, too, is a fact. Uh, what? I don't see any parallel between that movie clip and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, huh? So Jesus said something one time, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and uh, it says, Do not judge. That's what Jesus said. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, uh, I think Jesus told us not to judge. For one reason, it's the exact opposite of empathy. And in this scene with the colonel, uh, that's exactly what he's doing. He's judging and he's misjudging. These Navi from uh, Pandora, he's, he's basically assuming that they are savages and hostiles. And he says that we have to fear for our own survival. And, and, and he's creating a very us versus them mentality. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, us as Christ followers can come across that way. We fear, we assume that someone or some institution or some group of people that, that they are up to no good and and what we have to do is walk a mile in their shoes feel what they're feeling think what they're thinking connect with them understand them so that they then can understand us and the message and person that we we represent which is jesus so, so I, I i think jesus is calling us to have empathy instead of judging Uh, wow, it even has movie music. Now, here's the problem with feeling superior or, or feeling self-righteous. The, the problem is we can never see that in ourselves. We don't recognize that in ourselves. I mean, you think about this. You, any other problem that you might have or, or that a person would have, whether it is resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness or, or anger or anxiety or eating disorders or greed or mismanaged desires or self-destruction or addictions or, or, or whatever the case, usually these things are easy to see by somebody. Either I can see it or you can see it or they can see it or we can see it. Somebody can see it. And because we can see it, we have interventions and, and treatment centers and research programs. You can go buy a book. You can take a 12-step program. You can attend a class. But, but I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I, I, but, but, but I've never seen a Betty Ford treatment center for the self-righteous, mean-spirited rear ends of this world that masquerade as Christians. I've never seen that. And, and if there was, and there, maybe there should be that. And, and maybe I should enroll. I don't know. But, but the thing is, you, we just never see that. We, and, and, and the deep irony of this story, it, it is. What's really funny is, is that this is supposedly a story about empathy and not judging. And yet, Tommy Sparger is judging people. Yeah, he's judging people who would challenge his theology and his teaching. Isn't that weird? Hmm. It's not lost on me. I mean, I realize something. 
Every time I read these verses, can I just tell you what goes to my mind? When I read these verses, here's what I'm thinking. Thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. <laughs> That's what I think. So, so, so thank God I am superior to the guy who thought he was superior. Woohoo! I've got it together. Now, now the truth is, if, if this story is going to have any impact on me or any impact on you, we're going to have to stop and, and do a reality check and see that little monster down in our souls that likes to look down and judge them. Again, this is about self-righteousness, people trusting in their own self-righteousness. That's the root of why they're looking down on other people. Boy, huh? Them who? Fill in the blank. Them who? Can you imagine, like, like what if, what would the story be like if, if the Pharisee did something just, just so different? Now, listen to this, this section here. Now we're going to change the story up completely. And imagine if, if, if it was something different. The story isn't about empathy. It's about self-righteousness. What if he would have marched up to that tax collector and said, Listen, man, it takes a lot of courage for you to be in this temple. Your own people in this temple, they think you're a sinner. They don't think anyone's worse than you. They think you're a traitor to your people. In this temple, we're not real good at building bridges to people like you. And so for you to be here, that takes a lot of courage. And you must be really desperate to connect with God. Listen, listen. I am so glad that you are here. I mean, this is where... We don't even need to imagine anything like that because who's telling the story again? Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He's God in human flesh. And he's telling the story of a sinner who is justified. The the punchline of the of the parable. Remember Tommy, you said that a parable is a story with a point. What was the point? Jesus says, here's the punchline. Ready? Here's the point. I tell you this man, the sinner. I tell you this man, the tax collector. I tell you this man, the the man who everybody knows is a rotten scoundrel. He is the one who went to his home justified. The Greek word there literally means he went away declared justified. To be righteous. He went home justified rather than the other. Uh Uh-huh. That's the punchline. So we don't even, who cares about the Pharisee saying, oh, what if he had had empathy and done this or done that? It would have changed the story because here's the deal. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, is declaring a sinner to be righteous, pronouncing him to be righteous before God. Not because of any works of the law or his own righteousness, purely out of grace and mercy. By the way, the uh, Greek word there is didakai menos, didakai menos, and it literally means to pronounce somebody to be righteous. It comes from the Greek verb dikaiao, to take up a legal cause, show justice, do justice, take up a cause, to render a favorable verdict, to declare someone to be free of charges 
and declared to be a pronounced righteous or innocent. That's what the Greek word means. So here we, in the text itself, check the whole empathy thing here, that you're trying to force shoehorn a, a topic in that doesn't fit in the text. You have a sinner being declared by God to be innocent. All charges dropped. He's righteous. And everybody knows he's a sinner and he's done nothing except for confess his wretched sinfulness and beg for God's mercy. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, it's right here in narrative form. Clear as a bell. Where God does his best work. And I am glad something got to you. And I'm glad you're here. And, and, and I listen, I tell you what, you have one friend here, if nothing else. I will do anything that I can to help you connect with God in this place. So you call on me. Yeah, because this is Tommy Sparger's rewriting of this is all about making somebody feel comfortable in church. Oh, man. Because this is what God does best. So I want to help you. Of course, he doesn't do that. Instead, instead, you know the story, he, he judges. Now, the twist of this story, the, the whole time that this Pharisee is judging... He's judging. He's judging. If you were to walk up to him, and he's a friend of yours, and his name is Bill. Let's just call him Bill, Pharisee Bill. If you walked up to him and said, hey, Pharisee Bill, hey, how's your spiritual life going? You know what he would have said? Because all the outside things are great, great, great. He would say, fine. I got the checklist going, baby. Listen, temple, going to the temple, check. Worshiping, check. Praying, check. Fasting, check. Tithing, Check. Listen, if there is a God in heaven based on everything I've done, he has to meet me halfway now because I've done it all. And the whole time he's blind to this. He, he is more in the middle of, of, of sin than the prostitutes and the drug addicts of his world. Now, I have another Avatar movie clip that I think can help bring home this point. Check this out. Okay, this is a video log 12 times 21, 32. Do I have to do this now? Like, I really need to get some rack. No, now, when it's fresh. Okay, location, shack. And the days are starting to blur together. On do. On do. The language is a pain. You know, I figure it's like field stripping a weapon. Just repetition, repetition. Nari. 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 Tony Oil stronger. The theory calls me scoundrel. It means moron. This is a very important part of it. Norm's attitude has improved lately. I see you, but it's not just I'm I'm seeing you in front of me. It's I see into you. I see. It's good he's back on board, but he thinks I'm a scoundrel too. So you gotta get this, okay? Okay. I feel it getting tougher. I can run farther every day. I have to trust my body to know what to do.
Every day it's reading the trails, the tracks of the waterhole, tiniest scents and sounds. She's always going on about the flow of energy, the spirits of animals. Really hope this tree hugger crap isn't on the final. This isn't just about eye-hand coordination out there, you know. You need to listen to what she says. Try to see the forest through her eyes. Excuse me. This is my video log here. to die. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Seeing Jake Sully is learning the language and the culture uh, and the way of life of those that are in Pandora. And, and something that's very interesting, he's told in this scene to see through her eyes, to, to become one of them in order to connect with them. And I think that's so interesting, especially as it relates to this whole idea of empathy. Because if you think about it, the thing that Jesus did was he came and became one of us. He came to this planet, not just to visit, but to become one of us. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says, Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is what Jesus did. But made himself nothing. He came from heaven to this earth, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, so what Jesus did is, is, and I'm not saying Jesus is Jake Sully who's learning the language and the culture, but, but there is, is kind of an interesting connection uh, and, and illustration is that Jesus came to this earth and became one of us to reach us and to connect with us and have a relationship. At the heart of that is empathy. Now, here's where this whole thing gets personal and and this is like the application moment so i'm going to take just a couple of minutes and and give you application and i'm going to do it by way of a few questions and these are questions that i want you to ask yourself not only today but throughout this week and and these are questions that are kind of spooky and and uh they're scary to me i ask myself these questions and and i'm surprised sometimes at at the darkness that i find but but ask yourself a few questions like this do you have empathy or do you judge? What comes most natural? Boy, I tell you, this text does not teach this. We got a problem here, folks. Naturally to you. Do you, do you, as you look at the story of this Pharisee, and, and I don't care if you've been a Christian, you know, your entire life, or this is new to you, or you may be in here today and you're not even sure if you're convinced of the claims of Christ or not. These are still great questions to ask for every one of us. Listen, this Pharisee in this story, and, and he means well, I mean, he's trying to do something good, but this Pharisee in this story, uh, how much of him do you have in you? 
I mean, where are you on this thing? Do, do you find yourself passing judgment on other people? And, 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 and do you ever get just a little twinge of joy out of being critical? You know, it's like, yummy, 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 gossip. Oh, I would never admit it, but it feels so good. Oh, yeah. Let's call it a prayer request. Gossip. What, and, and now, here's one I'm guilty of. And, and, oh, gosh, I hate admitting this to you. And, and I wish I wasn't this pathetic, but, but I'm guilty of this one. Have, have you ever had someone like, like that they're further up the ladder than you or morally they are impeccable or, or they're a part, you know, they, they do what you do. They are in your field and, and they're sharp, but, but maybe they fall morally and, and stumble. And all of a sudden we all find out uh, something embarrassing about that person. And then deep down inside of you, there's just something that feels just a little bit better about yourself. Because you didn't climb any higher, but they got cut down. So now they're down there and you're here. So now you get to feel superior. I mean, has that ever happened? I mean, it has with me and I don't like admitting it. Uh, what, what about this one? If someone out there thinks a little bit differently than you do, philosophically, politically, with their ideology, I mean, if they think just different thoughts than you, do you immediately say, you know what, maybe I should work at seeing why you think that? Or I agree to disagree. Is that where you are? Or does your mind quickly go to idiots? I mean, I do that way too much. You Listen, brainwashed idiots, Nazis. I mean, where does your mind go? Do you realize that you might not be right 100% of the time. No. Gasp. Really? You mean we're sinners and we're... Oh, man. Here's the deal. He's describing sins. As sinners, we are guilty of all these things. Will he give us Christ and him crucified for our sins and bring us back to that tax collector who was declared righteous, not because of anything he did. He had no righteousness of his own. He was brought to complete spiritual poverty. What Tommy Sparger here is describing is exactly the same problem that leads to the problem that the Pharisee had. Do you realize that those that influence you and some of the people that you listen to on the TV or the talk shows or whatever, what if they're not right 100% of the time? And, and here's a newsflash. Some of you like me a lot. I'll promise you I'm not right 100% of the time. Yeah, this sermon's proven that. <clears throat> Humility. Two men went up to the temple to connect with God. One was deeply religious, and, and, and the more he tried, the further and further and further away from God he became. The other one was a tax collector. He was a sinner. He was a traitor to his people. He's the one that found God. And have you? Uh, no, he's the one who was declared righteous by God. Have you ever wondered this? Because I have. Have you ever wondered like what the tax collector thought of the Pharisee? Because we always know what have you ever thought what, what what did the tax collector think of the it's not even in the story you know what Pharisees are thinking 
because they're loud and they judge and they let their voice be heard. They, you're going to know what a Pharisee is thinking. But have you ever wondered, hey, what's that tax collector thinking of the Pharisee? I mean, what's he thinking? Oh. And, and truthfully, in the Bible, it's not recorded, so we'll never know. But I have an opinion. Oh, please, please exegete your opinion here. You're not given to have an opinion like that. You're given to proclaim what the text teaches, and you've, you haven't even gotten to the punchline. The punchline isn't empathy and not judging. The, the punchline is God judging and declaring as innocent the tax collector. Hello? I, I, I don't think he was thinking anything at all. I, I think he had way too much on his plate dealing with his own screw-ups and his own sin and his own inconsistencies. Last thing he's thinking about is this guy. He doesn't judge. A guy like him does not judge. And I think maybe, maybe we should follow suit. Now, now let me close just by saying this. Jesus did not give his life on a cross because we could get it all together religiously one day and make him happy by the really cool religious things that we can do. Okay, I feel a gospel nugget coming. He did give his life on a cross because we can never get it together. And, and, and the truth is this, at the foot of the cross, in that place, in that place, there's no room for superiority. There's no room for judgment. At the foot of the cross, there's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for smugness. There's no room for, hey, I am righteous in my own eyes and I know everything. At the foot of the cross, at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the cross, the only thing that there is room for is grace. And that tax collector and that Pharisee, and this is key to understanding the heart of God, you've got, listen, if you want to connect with the God of this universe, understand this right here. The, the difference between that Pharisee and that t tax collector on that day was the tax collector knew he was a sinner. Yep, but there's more to it. It's not just that he knew he was a sinner. The difference is he was declared righteous. When they leave the temple, one is declared righteous by God. The other isn't. That's the difference. They were both sinners. One of them had that figured out. Now, now, as, as we close, uh, let me ask you this. Do you have that figured out? Do you know what the key is to the heart of God? It is. Do you know the key to the heart of God? Oh, man. Is this place of humility. It is the place of brokenness. So this is the thing you've got to do. It's the place where we come to the end of who we are and say there is no room for anything else here at the foot of the cross, God, except for grace. And it is by grace that I stand, and it is by grace that I am saved. Let's pray. There it was, the gospel nugget in the last sentence of this. Um... There it went. Faster than a Navi warrior. Oh, man. Folks... I don't, I don't think I can add much to this. All along the way, I've showed you how he missed the gospel in this gospel text. And it, it was doomed to failure from the beginning because he began with a movie, distilled it down to a theme, and tried to find a verse that he could shoehorn into the theme. This is not how you preach God's word. And as a result of it, the thing that suffered was everybody who listened to it because they didn't get to hear the gospel correctly preached.
nor even get to hear the biblical punchline, because this isn't a parable about empathy. It's a parable about sinners and one being declared righteous by the mercy and grace of God and the other thinking that he can score points with God through his self-righteousness. And yeah, each and every one of us can look at the at the Pharisee and say, Whew, that looks scarily like me. Scarily. Repent. God's law says you have no righteousness that can stand before God. Your religious works, your things that you do to please God, those won't stand. They can't. Because you are a sinner, and without faith in Christ, it's impossible to please God. That was Hebrews 11.6. I thought it goes perfectly with Luke 18. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95. That's nothing, not much, but it's a lot to us. $6.95 every month to the ongoing work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email my email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> 